This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at, at Dallas Theological Seminary in the Hendricks Center. And my guest today is Ron Deal, and we're going to be talking about blended families and uh, all the possible combinations that could that that could represent. Uh, Ron is director of fam- of uh, Smart Step Families, as well as director uh, president for Smart Step Families. Sorry about that, and director for Family Life Blended, a ministry of family life. So let's begin. First of all, thank you, Ron, for being here with us, and let's talk about what family life is before we talk about how you got into this gig. Yeah, thanks for having me, Daryl. It's uh, good to be with you. Family Life is a ministry of crew here in North America. So we are a subsidiary marriage and family ministry that uh, reaches around the world. Um, a great deal of our ministry here is in here in North America, but we have a footprint in well over 100 countries around the world. We create marriage and family resources, parenting resources, um, do couples events. We're really known for our events. The Weekend to Remember Marriage Conference is a good example of that. We do a marriage cruise once a year and, um, and empower churches to minister to families in a lot of ways. National radio broadcast, Family Life Today, things like that. My division, Family Life Blended, specializes in working with stepfamilies. Uh, and the complexities that come along with that. So we produce, again, events. I have a own podcast called Family Life Blended, uh, ministry equipping events, as well as uh, enrichment events for couples, books, resources, online video curriculum, virtual classes, you name it, we try to do it. <laughs> mm, wow. Uh, that covers the gamut, I think. Very good. So um, so let's talk about... Uh, Smart step families and and you know my standard question at the beginning of every podcast is how did a nice guy like you get into a gig like this? Okay, so yeah. how, how's that work? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> I'll be the first to tell you this is not my life. Nan and I have been married for thirty five years. My parents were married for sixty five years before my mom died. I have three siblings. They're all in first marriages. It's not my life, but it is my professional career and. Um, you know, I think like a lot of things, God kind of brought me down this path in some ways, kicking and screaming, going, Lord, I don't understand. Why me? What's this about? But the bottom line is, if you're going to minister to people, I think we've got to be relevant in church work. We've got to be looking for where are they, what's happening in culture, and how do we respond? Back in 1993, when I graduated from Abilene Christian University with a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, they taught me how to think and do clinical work. But the whole time I was doing my preparation, I was thinking, what's the local church do? How do we do ministry and prevention and enrichment with couples and families of all types? And so I wandered down the road of, well, we, we got to do single parent ministry. Why in the world would we neglect this group of people? Uh, let's do marriage enrichment stuff. Let's do parent training. Oh, and there's this group over here called Step Families. Let's minister to them too. Well, little did I realize there was a huge gap 
in marriage and family ministry for blended families. And the little things we began to do in local churches worked. And next thing I know, I'm writing about it. I'm talking about it. I'm training. And it over a period of a decade, it became my life. And mm. so I've been in this area now specializing for almost 30 years. And um, it's, it, I love it. I really do love it. When you get to see the redemptive work of God mm. in a family situation that has already experienced some difficulty and pain, and you see God come alongside them and things change for this generation and the next, I mean, what's better than that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so let's define blended here. We're talking about blended families. Sometimes you hear mixed families. Uh, and I guess a sub question I have here is, is that I imagine that blended families come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Yeah. So that can be, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you start there and then we'll go yeah. from there. No, it's, it's a good question. It's a fair question because blended family is a very general term in some circles across the U.S. It, we generally, we're talking about step families here, um, not foster families, not adoptive families, not, you know, we're talking about a family where one of the adults had a child from a previous relationship, whatever that backstory is, and has now brought at least one child into a marriage situation. That's a, a step family. Some people prefer the term blended family. Now that causes difficulties because in some parts of the U.S., a blended family is a biracial couple and family. That's actually where I was going next. <clears throat> okay. and, and that's true in the Southeast part of the U.S. This is also true in the military. The, the term blended family always in the military means a biracial couple. It does not mm. mean a step family. So it depends on where you are in the U.S. and around the world. Blended family is the predominant general term here in the U.S. now. That changed about 15 years ago, but it is true. But in the U.K. and Australia and New Zealand and uh, China, step family is the predominant term. In Latin America, Spanish-speaking countries, we have some challenges there because there is no equivalent word for step family. None. Mm. Mm. And so it is a reconstituted family. What I'm getting at here is... There are some challenges just in languaging about who we're talking about. So one of the little ministry tips I would give people watching is we have learned to use blended family and step family, step parent, whatever form that takes interchangeably throughout our materials, even in our title and subtitle, we will use step family and blended family so that people understand what it is that we're talking about. So uh, is there, was there any rationale for the shift in the language? Uh, I mean, I'm curious as, as to whether there's something going on there. I think it's culture. I just think it's culture. Now, some people will, I've got a theory, you know, uh, some people really reel against the word step parent. Well, I'm not a step parent. These are all my kids. No, there's no steps in our home. Um, by the way, adults say that I've never heard a child say that. And, and there's, there's, there's a teaching point here. Um, okay. we can come back to in just a second, but yeah. sometimes the negative connotation of step is something people are trying to get away from. And so they term or they, they prefer the term blended family. Uh, whatever the, whatever the explanation is about 15 years ago, there was a pretty dramatic shift. If you just go out and survey the, you know, local papers and uh, uh, online magazines and articles and language and social media. Blended family is the predominant term in the U.S. And I imagine that some of the discomfort with step family is, is that it puts the stress on either the biological or original relationship and suggests that the 
one who's now doing the parenting isn't really a parent. And so yeah. that's, that's the hesitation for going there. Yeah. The fear behind um, calling somebody a stepchild or them calling you a step parent is that we're not family, that somehow we haven't combined, that we're not together, that somebody feels left out or unchosen or unwanted. Uh, and step parents obviously don't want to feel rejected in their role and in the, in the, in the, the position they have in their home. So, you can hear the attachment concerns wrapped up in the preference about which kind of language they would prefer to use. When I said a minute ago, I've never had a child say, this is my blended mom. <laughs> uh, this, this is, it, it, children know who are biological and who are step relationships. It's very clear to them because that represents who is their parent and that carries with it loyalties and they are not quick to toss around terms of calling a, a stepmom mom or calling a stepdad dad. That does happen. It's a small, small percentage of children who do that quickly. Um, it's a much larger percentage of children who are on a journey to figure out who you are in my life. Daryl, the quick illustration I would give everybody listening is something probably everybody can relate to. And that is, what do you call your mother-in-law? Now, some people go, oh, she's mom. She's been mom since day one, and it's all good, and she calls me her son. And, and other people are like, oh, no, I, I don't call her mom. No, that ain't happening. And, I, and there's a reason why you don't call her mom, and it could be respect for your mom. It could be you just don't have a great relationship. We all get this. This is not something new, this terminology quandary. It is ultimately about defining relationship and how we're going to get along with one another, just like with a, you know, mother-in-law or a, uh, a brother-in-law or somebody that you're still trying to figure out the nature of that relationship. Yeah. What a great illustration. I lost my mom when she was, when I was 14. Hmm. And so as a result, when I got married, um, uh, my mother-in-law who I have the highest regard for, and was just, we had a great relationship. I would call her Ann, and then when we had children, I would call her Mimi, which is mm. what our kids are. But I was very, very hesitant to call her mom out of that sense of respect for a mom who I did not have all the way through my my yeah. growing up years. And so yeah. uh, it's just, uh, and, and it wasn't meant as a slight in the least. It was right. just, you know, um, and, and so, uh, you know, I get that. And I assume that is a little snapshot. Yes. Of all the identity issues that are tied up when you blend a family and you've got a potentially a, a biological mother in one location and or father. And and now you've got a new, in a sense, a, a different set of parents or at least a different combination of parents that you're dealing with. Yeah. Just this morning, I was interviewing somebody for our Family Life Blended podcast and uh, a woman married a man. He's a pastor. He had six children. She had two children when they got married. And we talked about the complexity of how one plus one equals 10 in their yeah. situation. Yeah. And I said, but the complexity multiplier is even well beyond that in blended families. So now you have, you know, the first child's expectation of the stepmother and her role and what, who she's going to be in the family. You have Child two, three, four, five, six, all have an expectation. Stepmom has an expectation of herself. Her husband has an expectation of her as the stepmother to his children. Okay, how many expectations is now she dealing with? Not just relationships, but the multiplicity of definitions of who she's supposed to be. 
And somehow she's supposed to find favor in the sight of everyone. You can begin to see how quickly that is a frustrating endeavor for some people, not for every step parent, but it frequently becomes something of, I just don't know who I am, who I'm supposed to be or how to do this. And that's and, and essentially then, what we help people try to figure out. And then there's a layer that you didn't even get to, which is all the siblings have got to go through all the same relationships and, and reconfigurations right. that come you know, are, are the two that join older than the others? Are they in the mix? You know, mm -hmm. are they on the bottom end? Mm -hmm. What does that do to the dynamic? I just, I mean, you know, this is how I get my hair long, you know? <laughs> <laughs> there are many, many layers. I, I often say the middle name of a blended family is complexity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, this is lesson one for your ministry leaders who are watching. If you assume that the blend, that the biological family advice that you give is an immediate crossover to the blended families you're dealing with. You're not only wrong, you are not serving them well because that advice will backfire for about 50 reasons. If you don't do your homework and take some time, if you don't listen well to their, their narratives, um, it's very easy to give misinformed advice. It, you want to give second family advice to second families. You don't want to give first family advice to second families. And again, another feature that we didn't even mention yet, but that's a part of the equation is if if the former spouse is still alive, that's yet another dynamic that has to be dealt with on a regular basis mm -hmm. that automatically tells you this family is not the family that we normally think of when we think about a first family. Yeah. Gary Chapman and I wrote a book, came out last year, Building Love Together and Blended Families. And one of the things I said in there is blended families are tall and wide. Mm -hmm. And what I meant by that is they're tall in the sense that they're generational. Mm -hmm. you, you have this generation and the children, stepchildren. Someday you may have step-grandchildren, but you also have grandparents. So that's three, four generations. But they're wide. And that's the piece that a lot of people underestimate. It blended couples underestimate it and ministry leaders really underestimate this. It's not just who's in your home, but it's the former spouse, the children moving between two households. If you both brought children, there's three households that children are moving between. Uh, more and more, Daryl, hang with me, <laughs> more and more uh, mothers have two or more children by two or more fathers. Mm -hmm. So it's not just three households. It might be four households or five households that children are moving between. And now add up the number of parents. That's at least 10 parents. It might be 16 parents. And then this, I, I talked to a couple yesterday. When they got married, there were 22 grandparents, 22 grandparents involved in their kids' lives. Where do you go for Christmas? How do you navigate that? Like, yeah, complexity yeah. is layer upon layer upon layer. If there is one explanation for why there are, is a greater level of stress in couples' relationships, in blended families, and a higher rate of divorce, it comes down to that word complexity. And anytime we come alongside people, <laughs> begin to help them make sense of this, begin to help them have some, uh, give them a map in the midst of that wilderness, uh, boy, is it a cup of cold water that is really, really helpful. So, so let's talk about this from kind of two angles simultaneously. What, what do you do or attempt to do when you come alongside a couple on the one hand? Yeah. And then secondly, what advice would you give to someone who's in the church who's ministering to this kind of a family? Okay. Well, the first thing I want to try to do when I'm 
is listen, hear their story, figure out the narrative, figure out the complexity. Often I'm doing a little genogram, some sort of a little map on a piece of paper because I can't keep up with the number of people involved in this family uh, production. And, and, and just beginning to try to hear where the pain points are, where the difficulties are. If I have a bias as a helper, as a counselor, it is I really want to pour into the couple because at the end of the day, the couple has to bear the weight of all of that complexity. They have to navigate it together. And if they can't, it's an easy division of, and, and they go their separate ways. So parenting dilemmas, uh, financial dilemmas, the other household, you and I get along great. Our kids get along great. Your spouse, ex-spouse is killing us. That's mm-hmm. often a narrative that couples have. They really do have a pretty healthy marriage relationship. They really do have growing, decent relationships with their stepchildren. But the former spouse is an antagonist to their whole um, story. You find out where those pain points are and then begin to try to help them navigate through that. You know, one of my taglines is um, helping people get smart about their family and about that complexity. It, it, they're easily sideswiped by it if they have uh, no awareness of what it is or why it is um, when they hear and understand and go, Oh, that's what's going on with my kid. My kids kind of like Daryl, not calling the stepmom mom because mm-hmm. he has a deep loyalty and commitment to his biological mother who's been deceased for years, but that matters to the, to mm-hmm. my child. So I need to let go of the expectation that he's going to call my wife, mom, right. Mm-hmm. Now that you've relaxed into that, how about we just enjoy the name he does come up with? And we mm-hmm. try to find that, make it workable, and just be okay with it and move forward. Over time, the, the label may change. The relationship will change. It will grow, but it's not going to happen today. Like That little shift in perspective and expectation, again, creates a climate where people are able to get along in, in some subtle ways, but some powerful ways. Obviously, you can see where I'm going with ministry. Mm-hmm. Pastors need to get smart too. Um, man, we are pouring into this. We have ministry tools and resources. Um, we have sections of our website designed just for pastors. And and I'll share a, a link with you if you can share it with people. You can do that. But they can just go to familylife.com and click Blended Family and they'll find it. They'll get there. We do every fall a two-day ministry equipping event for ministry leaders, lay couples, senior pastors, children's ministry leaders, whoever, uh, come and learn. It's different every year. We have a different theme. We expand. We build on things we've done in the past. We invite all the teachers and speakers from around the country who are really invested in this area to come together, network. It's a great time. That's now virtual. We now have the back conferences available online. It's available. It used to be that people would say to me, couples and ministry leaders would, would both say, boy, it's so hard to find resources. For, from a Christian point of view. That is not true anymore. It's not true anymore. Um, we at Family have put out in the last two years more resources than the Christian community had over the last 20 years, and we're not slowing down. You just have to tap into it, and you can learn some things that will really equip you to help others. Now, I imagine that one of the great challenges in the midst of this mix is, because we've been talking about, at least initially, this from the standpoint of the parents in the family. But I can imagine that the real challenges in many ways exist with the children in in blended families. Is that a good assumption? 
Well, I think they have their own journey and their own thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, obviously, whether they're two, well, maybe not two-year-olds, five-year-olds have an opinion about what's going on in their life and their family. Mm-hmm. Um, adult stepchildren, this is something a lot of people don't think about. You can oh, be yeah. 30, 30 years of age, dad's getting married again at, you know, after mom died. Let me tell you, a 30-year-old is highly invested in what's going on in dad's world and life and how this ripples through the entire generations of the family. And they can have as many adjustment issues as a five-year-old or a 15-year-old can. It's just a different playing field, different specifics, but they're still trying to figure out the family identity. Everything's changed. Again, everything has changed. And so, yes, helping kids is one of those pieces that uh, we certainly try to attend to. When we do training events, uh, my video series for churches has a session for children. You know, we're always trying to help adults understand the experience of kids so that they can step into that world a little easier, have a little more compassion and and empathy for them, but at the same time, know where to set the boundaries. Uh, You you don't want to be paralyzed by a child who's upset about what's going on, but at the same time, you do need to listen. Because a, a, a kid who says, hey, you're not my dad, I don't have to do what you say, is telling you a whole lot besides they don't want to clean the room. Mm-hmm. They are telling you, I miss my dad. That's deeply embedded in that, in that uh, refusal to obey. I mm-hmm. miss my dad. They're telling you, you know, I've been dealing with a lot of unwanted loss for a long time because of choices other people make for my life. And I'm really sick of it. And now you're telling me I got to clean my room. And I just, you know what? I don't want to receive that because if I do, then somehow it feels like I'm saying it's all okay. And it's not okay. So no, I'm not going to clean my room. Deep in bed in that kid's statement, you're not my dad. I don't have to do what you say is, is a child who's saying, you know what? I don't know who I am anymore. I, I was the oldest and I helped all my siblings out and I made dinner three times a week. And then you showed up and now I don't know who I am. There is a lot layered into that one moment. So when a parent says in response, a step parent, you're right. I'm not your dad. I get it. In fact, if I were you, I'd really not like me very much. But here's the deal. We can talk about that later. Your mom, you guys can talk about that if you want. But here's the deal. Everybody does their part around here. And we're asking you to clean your room. So either you can do it or we'll use your allowance and let your brother do it for you. We'll pay him to do it for you. So there's a gentle response, a gentle response, a loving response. You don't have to argue about not being the dad. You're not the dad. Don't argue about that. That's not the point. The point is this kid is hurting, but he still has to clean his room. How do we get to that? Later, mom can come in and talk to him. Later, we can spend some time helping him unpack his, his sadness over what's going on with his life. And that will help over time. It's a lot. So, you know, again, we just try to help coach people into what is this? Why does a kid say that? And what can you do about it? Yeah, you know, um, uh, and this is interesting because, you know, normally normally, or oftentimes when you think about step families, you think about divorces or multiple divorces. But I I was in a step family not because of that, but because my mom died young. Mm-hmm. So my dad remarried. He remarried go. several years later. And the sh- most shocking thing about the remarriage was not that he got remarried. The most shocking thing about the remarriage was how my siblings reacted to the remarriage. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, we were four. I was the only one 
who accepted the marriage in one sense, who was, who was okay with it and didn't go through very much. But I had a younger sister for whom my mom's death was absolutely devastating. Yeah. She actually lost her wife for about 10 years as a result. And then I had two elder siblings who were out of the house when my mom died. They were already in college and, uh, and who were adults who reacted very differently as well. And, and as a middle child in the midst, midst of that mix was a mess, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, because, because my older, my older siblings, they were like my, my little heroes, you know, only they were not responding heroically, you know, Yeah, right. and, and, you know, and, and my little sister who I was, who I sometimes had to parent and take care of just because my dad was on the road a lot. Uh, you know, all of a sudden had this parent figure in the house who she reacted to much like the, what you're not my mom, you know? And so what a mess. I mean, yeah. so, I mean, so I get it. It's blended sounds like a nice word, but sometimes the blending takes work. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, um, that is a teaching point that we tell people, you know, blended yeah. is the fantasy. Blended is what you want, but that's not how it starts. And it's not a quick blend. It is a long process and you got to be committed to, to it. And, and you can reach an integration of family members, just like with your mother-in-law, where you have a respect for her and you love her, but you still don't call her mom. Mm -hmm. That process will happen between step family members with time. Uh, by the way, you said something really important. Not mm -hmm. all blended families are a result of divorce. We've got to get that out of our brains as mm -hmm. ministry leaders. That is far too small a pigeonhole. A, a large percentage are a result of death. We have a lot of adult step families formed after a 40-year marriage and somebody passes away. The adult children are still stepchildren. That's still a dynamic there. But here's the one that I got to share with your audience. <laughs> Less than a month, we've had this stat. You ready? 15%, 15% of first marriages form blended families. Not preceded by death or divorce, preceded by an out of wedlock pregnancy with somebody else and a child exists. Nobody's ever been married before. 15% of first marriages in today's culture form blended families. If you got one little you know, pathway into blended family living, and that's all you can imagine, then you are missing a large percentage of the people in your church. I still have pastors go, you know, I'm not sure how many divorced and remarried couples we have. Well, how many widowed remarried couples do you have? How many first marriage blended families? You got to widen your lens. Mm -hmm. This is 40% of families raising children. Right. Yeah. That's the statistic that gets me is, is that 40%, you know, yeah, that there are almost as many... <laughs> There are almost as many first families in the way we traditionally think about it as the as amount of blended families that we have surrounding well, us. Well, let me just broaden it a little bit. If we think okay. of non-traditional families as blended families, single parent families, um, uh, and single adults, that group of people, those three categories are larger than first married traditional families sure. in the United States. Yeah. Non-traditional is the new traditional. Yeah. And if you're preaching and all you can imagine when you say the word marriage is a traditional couple, if you're preaching and talk about relationships and all you think of is married people, not single people, if all you can imagine in parenting is uh, two couple raising their kids versus a bio parent, step parent raising kids with a co-parent in the other home versus a single parent raising them, you are not talking to the people in your community. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you're, and you're, you're, you're missing from the start because, because there's a whole swath of your audience. That's not where they are. Yeah. And Daryl, maybe this is the place where we kind of pause and, you know, talk about the elephant in the room, because I think Mm -hmm. as ministry leaders, that elephant is, huh? Well, I kind of feel a little weird if I somehow talk to non-traditional families as if they are okay to be in our, in our, in our fold, that somehow I'm saying it's okay. Sin in the past that brought them to this place, decisions they or somebody else made somehow we're blessing sin somehow. I, I really get that. And I really appreciate the mindfulness that leaders have. We never want to be perceived <laughs> as going soft on, on sin. It, it, you know, the, the, the cross is far too important for us to go soft on that. But mercy <laughs> mm-hmm. is never wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I just sometimes wish we would stop talking about only one side of the coin. You know, yes, divorce, an invalid divorce is a sin. And yet, on the other side, we're called to mercy, not just a little mercy, but to love mercy. <laughs> you know, according to Malachi, just love mercy, love kindness, love that stuff. This is who God mm-hmm. is. And you look at the example of Jesus over and over and the people that he dealt with. Why does he sit with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he sit with divorced people and remarriages? Why? Because he loves mercy. And we're called to that. And I think we've got to find our way to teach truth and be the church that loves people wherever they are, however they come, John 4, woman at the well, whatever, whatever that, John 8, woman caught in adultery, let's be those people who love mercy and finds a way to bring them in and teach them better from here. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's a great observation. I, you know, that's a challenge in a variety of kinds of relationships that we see in the church, the, the, how to deal with who we are and lift up the standards and commitments of holiness that the church is supposed to uphold on the one yeah. hand, but then how do we, how do we live as people who actually understand that everyone who's in the church is a forgiven person? Yeah. You know, uh, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm my, my problem might not be your problem, but we all got problems. Amen. Amen. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the truce podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah. So uh, we're all, we're all sinners in need of a hospital. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I always, when I talk about evangelism, I often say probably the most important thing to remember in evangelism is, is that when you're interacting with someone who doesn't understand who God is, who's wrestling with who God is, 
that that's exactly who you were when God tapped you on the shoulder. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's, I think that helps us to remember where we came from mm-hmm. and that we only have what we have because of who he is, not because of anything that we've done. So yes. um, very, very important. And actually what I'm hearing kind of underneath all the things that you're saying is, is helping people who are in a role who are worried about what their identity is and where they are having a touch of, and I don't know what other word to use, of empathy or understanding for where the person they're interacting with is coming from uh-huh. and what they're, and, and what they are, what, what their processing is. Because when we get so focused on ourselves, sometimes we miss that piece. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it, and you know, I, this is not hard for me. I, Nan and I have struggles in our marriage. We, through the years, we have sought out helpers multiple times in seasons of our life. We oh, have I've never had a problem with Sally in 40 plus years of marriage. We just automatically <laughs> click. Uh, we, you know, we've never had those, the two parties met and had diplomatic discussions. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a lie. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. No, my, my, uh, we, we, um, our, our joke during COVID has been, we've been together a year and neither of us is dead. It's a victory. Mm. That is a big victory. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, the the old self is hard to take off. And, yeah. you know, we all have things about us that are uh, n- not characteristic of righteousness. And yeah. so marriage and family. Okay. Here, here's a little piece I, I, from ministry leaders. I really wish we would understand the discipleship value of relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we look at marriage and family ministry like it's just this thing over here you do for women or men or couples or no, this is discipleship stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. Teach them the book of John. Yeah. That's a really good thing to do and teach them how to live in love another person that sometimes they can't stand a person that sometimes reflects back to them, their own selfishness and makes them deal with their selfishness in ways they would never have to deal with if they weren't trying to walk it out in a marriage relationship, step parenting. It'll show you real fast um, how much you crave somebody's approval Mm -hmm. (laughs) when you don't get it (laughs) from a stepchild, when you don't get respect, when you don't feel like anybody honors you for all that you do for these kids. Like real fast, you'll discover, what am I really worshiping here? This is all discipleship. And I I really think if pastors understood that, every church in the world would have a marriage and family ministry. But we Mm -hmm. all know that doesn't really happen. And it's certainly not prioritized the way it could be. But you want to talk about on the ground, teaching me how to live. Family does that. And it forces me to deal with my own selfishness in the process. You know, I just did, did a series in which I had a message which was titled Difficult Conversations. It was actually an exposition of James 1, 19 and 20. No beginning. Um, quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I spent five minutes on the passage hmm. and spent probably 35 minutes on the practical implications of what that passage was relationally. And, and, and the reason for that is because the mere exposition of the text doesn't get you into the relational dynamics of what it requires. Right. And, 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 and wrestling with that and presenting. And I told him ahead of time, I said, this is not going to be the normal message you hear from me. There's going to be far more time spent in, in how to apply what is being said than in understanding what is being said. Because understanding what's being said is the easy part. It's the application. Right. It's the trick. That's and exactly so, right. You know, and, and so 
and, and I sense that that's kind of what you're saying is that one of the things that leaders need to be aware of is sometimes the passage is relatively straightforward and, and you, you can understand what the concepts, the words are putting together, but to actually live that out in the logistics of everyday life relationally. Oh man. Hey, self-control, one of the fruit of the spirit is, is one of the biggest challenges for most of us in life. If you have ever lost your cookies with your kids, if you've mm-hmm. ever become, you know, the big psychological term is dysregulated, neurobiologically mm-hmm. interpersonal connectedness, you've become dysregulated over a situation with a spouse, a friend, a family member, a child. Um, guess what? Self-control is the answer. But how do you actually do it? How do you actually implement that? There is a whole lot wrapped up in the application of that. But when you can achieve it, it transforms relationships. Mm-hmm. This is discipleship. 101. And, and I think when people get that, they see all of a sudden single parent ministry is not just about a handout to somebody who is financially in a tough. No, we're helping them live faithfully in life. Blended family ministry is not condoning their past, not somehow saying, oh, that sin was okay. We're, we're saying live righteously from this point forward as best you can in the family you have, honoring the vows you have taken. And we want to help you try to do that because God's going to shape you in the process of walking this commitment out. That's discipleship. Like When we capture that, that vision for that, then all of a sudden, you know, relationship family ministry I think would become at least one priority that we have in local churches. You used a phrase a while ago, and I I think I remember you said dysregulated. It's not a, it's not a phrase or a term I use on a regular basis. Uh, So, uh, and and then you alluded neurologically to what's happening. We've actually talked about this on the table in other conversations that we've had, but I think it's important to remind people that when you get, uh, I'll use the phrase, when you get worked up, Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Your your brain, your brain reacts, yep. and and it actually um, to compensate prevents you from being focused on what you probably should be focused on as you're dealing with the way in which you've been riled up. Can can you can you unpack that a little yes. bit for us? Because that's an important important it idea. Is. Most people are and you know surprised to learn that the same thing happens in your brain as when a bear, when you turn around in the woods and there's a bear behind you and you go into fight, flight, or freeze, the exact same thing happens to your your mind, body, and spirit. I'll I'll broaden it, not just your brain. Uh Right. The same thing happens when when your wife says, uh, why are you driving this way? You're driving too fast. You need to slow down, move over to this left lane. Why don't you turn up here? Because then we're going to get there fast. And when you feel controlled and in that moment go, don't tell me how to drive. The same thing happened neurologically in your body as when the bear is right behind you. You went into fight, flat, or freeze. You stopped thinking. You lost self-control because the frontal part of your brain just turned off. The prefrontal cortex turned off. You went into the what we call the old part of the brain uh, where you just fight, flat, or freeze, and you react. You are now dysregulated. You are not managing yourself. Your fear is managing you. This happens in nanoseconds in every relationship, every moment of every day. Self-control, <laughs> love, joy, peace, space is kind of good as faithfulness, self is, is stopping your brain from doing what it wants to do 
being having a mind controlled by the spirit, which is what Paul tells us in Romans 7 and 8 is life and peace as opposed to death. And all of a sudden you're bringing life to your interaction with your wife rather than death. I, I, l- let me tell you, <laughs> there is a whole science to this and it is all connected to how we behave and act moment to moment. I am in the journey myself. I am mm-hmm. very much trying to put on self-control in those nanoseconds. I lost it just last week with my wife. One of those little moments of criticism, what I heard actually turned out, I totally misunderstood what she said. But in a nanosecond, I went into defensiveness and reactivity, just like I did 20 years ago. And I had to grab a hold of myself. I had to apologize. I had to put on humility. I had to own who I was and I had to ask for her forgiveness. And we had to spend about a couple hours talking through what happened. Why did that happen? What did you hear? This is what I thought. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. Dysregulation. (laughs) And then we try to bring the spirit into it to help repair. But as I'm growing moment by moment, trying to do those better next time, I'm becoming more like Christ. Mm -hmm. Now you said when this, thing happen when this this reaction happens is de- dysregulation i'm gonna i'm gonna use that word when i go home tonight <laughs> how my wife thinks how my wife thinks about it hopefully i won't do it just make sure uh, you talk about yourself being dysregulated don't tell her she's dysregulated <laughs> boy I, that was worth the that's worth the podcast right there <laughs> anyway um but you you've also used another phrase that i think is important and that was a fight flight or freeze. Am I hearing that right? You, yes. you, you, you threw that out pretty quickly. So I'm, I'm the catcher here. And I, I'm, I think I got all the curveball or knuckle or whatever it was you threw at me. So, so talk about that. So when you, when you're in, when you're in a, uh, when you sense you're in a crisis, mm-hmm. okay. Which I think is probably the way to define dysre- dysregulated. When yeah. you sense you're in a crisis responding as if it's a crisis, you, you've, you've limited your options to three. Is that basically what you were saying? That's right. The brain at that point really only knows to do three things. Um, fight, right? Try to stand up against the bear or whatever yeah. you perceive as the threat to you. Freeze is, I don't know what to do. I'm paralyzed. I end up doing nothing. Or flee, which is withdrawal. Now, this, you, know, you think about a relational yeah. you know, expression of this. We all have our different patterns. Um, I'm a defender. A defensiveness is one of my spiritual gifts. I, I don't mm-hmm. know if you knew that, but it's actually yeah. in the Bible. Yeah, it's and, probably in uh, all of us. Yeah, and, and <laughs> it's huge in me. And if yeah. I feel like I'm not winning, I withdraw. I want to disconnect. I want to pull away. So now that I know that about myself, <laughs> see, this is where humility comes in. Mm-hmm. Now that I know that about myself, literally, I can say, you know, what I know about me is I really want to run away from me right now because I'm not feeling like this is a safe moment in our relationship. And what I also know is when I run away, I make you feel insecure and unloved. And that's not helpful either. So I've got to do something courageous and godly right now. What would that be? I think that might be just staying here and engaging and managing my fear so that it doesn't get the best of me. Mm-hmm. That's a grow up moment, Daryl. Yeah. Yeah. That, that we is talk a grow about, up moment. We talk about at the center, we talk about this a lot. And whenever you walk into a difficult conversation, you really have, you also only have three options, although maybe it's four given what you've said. And that is um, you can push back, okay, which is fight, okay? Mm-hmm. You can withdraw, 
which mm-hmm. is your combination of either freeze or, or flee. Yeah. Okay. Or you can move towards somebody. Uh-huh. And the, and the choice that you need to make is that is to take the effort and the time and the humility. Cause sometimes it does take that, um, to move towards somebody and actually make an effort not to think about where you are, but to think about where they are. Mm-hmm. And sometimes moving toward them, or in fact, I would say many times moving toward them includes managing what's going on inside of me, uh, right. re- you know, refusing to let my fear get the best of me and, and make me aggressive, angry, critical, defensive, whatever those things are. Right. And instead, move towards you in softness. Here's where the other fruit of the spirit, gentleness, <laughs> yes. comes into play. Like I'm going to bring self-control and gentleness to this hard moment. I guarantee you, it will go better. I don't know if it will go perfect. I don't know if you'll work everything out, but it will go much better than it would have had you let fight, flight, or freeze dominate and control you. Yeah, you know, I, again, uh, I've done the a lot of work that I do in the in the cultural engagement space is to think about how do I have a conversation in the pluralism space? How do I have a conversation with someone who I know disagrees with what I believe? You know, uh, how do I engage in that difficult conversation space? And as we, we talk about that, we engage, but we talk about the importance of listening. We talk about the importance of moving towards someone. But when you look at the passages in scripture that talk about that, that space, it always talks about that you're, speech, always be gracious, you know, do good to those on the outside, especially those in the faith. Um, Be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you, but do it with meekness and respect. You know, you see this tonal element that literally is like on top of everything that's supposed to be going on, regardless of what the content is that you're talking about. Imagine our social political rhetoric around right now. If people put on meekness and humility and respect and decency in how they communicated their opinions, imagine we'd still have disagreements, but they would be more civil. (laughs) There might just be collaborative every once in a while. Somebody just might be able to see another person's point of view and go, huh, yeah, you got a point there. Instead of it being uh, oppositional and antagonistic. Yeah. Daryl, man, I could go on about this forever. Let me tell you. The, the little phrase that is used repeat, repeatedly throughout the Old and New Testament in the Bible about pride and humility is uh, it's unbelievably profound. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, here's what I know. So do mm-hmm. spouses. Mm-hmm. So do children. So do coworkers. So do people on opposite political lines than us. We give grace to humility. We oppose pride. If my posture with my spouse or my kids or my coworker is gosh, you're an idiot and I know better than you, pride. And I'm not listening. I don't need to listen. I've actually got this figured out. I don't need you, pride. We do the same thing with God. Mm -hmm. God says, I'm going to oppose you. And we're made in his likeness. Let me tell you, it works the same in human relationships, vertically and horizontally is the same. So all of a sudden I'm inviting people to oppose me. There's no way we're having peace when I lead with pride. I invite you to oppose me. If, however, I have an attitude of humility and softness and gentleness, and I can have an opinion, and yet I bring to the equation, uh, no, I don't really don't have this all figured out. I'm open. I'm, I'm here, just like Christ did, Philippians 2. What happens? We invite grace. It transforms relationships. 
I'm going to spend the next 20 years of my life teaching this as it relates to marriage and parenting and family and leadership, because it is so deeply profound in what it does moment to moment. But I have to lead with humility. And let me tell you, I think sometimes leaders have a hard time with that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the hard cha- cha- challenge here, I mean, the, the public square space is no different than the marriage space in this regard. Uh, and, and the thing that, the thing that I try and communicate in the midst of this move towards humility is, is the example of Christ and the security that we have because our identity, our identity is wrapped in the grips of God. So there's nothing at stake for me in this, you know, I can, I can walk into this space. I can take the hits if you will. And, and in the process, um, respond in a, in a non-retaliatory way uh, in the midst of something that might be raised as a battle. And, and then out of that, um, hopefully project an opportunity for a different kind of conversation. I agree. I mean, it, it's amazing what happens. I can tell you 15 years ago when my wife said something that I felt was critical of me and I went into defensiveness, not only did, was I defensive about her initial criticism, I then defended my defensiveness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that would last three days of argument and disagreement and emotional disconnect between us, okay? Now, when I do that, and I quickly go in humility. Oh, rats. I just ruined that. I am so sorry. Look what I did. I just put on defensiveness again. You didn't deserve that. And I openly f- confess my defensiveness and put on humility. Call it owning your own stuff. We can unwind that moment in about an yep. hour. Yeah. It is night and day. Um, but it involves <laughs> self-control. Yeah. Yeah. Self-control and humility. I mean, they're very important values. And I think that, and, and, it, and in one sense, it takes courage because it involves vulnerability. Yes. And, yes. Um, and that's, that's, that's a hard place. In our, in our society, to be vulnerable is, uh, generally speaking, not respected. Mm-hmm. And so, so it, that's what makes it courageous. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we came to talk about blended families. We're talking about the soul, Yeah, <laughs> uh, you, you know, uh, and, and that's, that's actually important because how you interact in a blended family environment is all related to where you're coming from in your soul and spirit. Yeah. And, you know, I was just thinking the same thing. Um, we're still talking about blended families and other relationships in this process. I, I am going to layer in another truism about about step couple relationships in particular, when you have been through something really hard, the death of a spouse, uh, an unwanted divorce, for example, you you were married, you were committed, and then your spouse left you, right? They just left you. That leaves a residue on anybody's heart. And now you find yourself in another relationship trying to give all of you into it. Guess what? Guess what is a, a problem for most people, right? Trust. And how do I sacrifice and surrender me to you in this relationship? I want to, but oh my goodness, the last time I did that, it about killed me. I don't want to go through that again. So there's this added uh, dimension that makes surrender and transparency and vulnerability even more difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I even extend that to children. Um, I like you as my step parent. That's part of my problem. I'm not sure if you're going to be around very long. The last person wasn't. I like you 
it's part of my problem. I, if I move toward you, I feel like my biological, if you're my stepdad and I move toward my stepdad, my biological dad might feel offended and he might feel like I'm, I'm somehow denying him his place in my heart. And so I'm not sure what to do with that. So my fear keeps me from moving toward my stepdad. This is a really big factor under the surface going on in many blended family situations. Again, we help people recognize that in themselves put on humility about it and decide how they're going to, are they going to let fear paralyze them? Or are they going to find a way to courageously walk through and try to love anyway? Yeah, Those are terrific. Cool. Terrific. I mean, I, you know, I'm sitting here going, I can think through numerous conversations I've had with couples that have gone through divorces in which there really is a lack of confidence about being able to sustain a relationship because uh-huh. of the previous failure. Um, Yep. Uh, and in some cases, it doesn't matter if, if you could have if you could have assigned fault to how the previous thing broke down. In some sense, that doesn't make any difference. They're still mm-hmm. wounded, right? And and and, and so um, so it, so that that gets a that becomes a real tangle. And and so yeah, I just so helpful, Ron. Really, really appreciate it. Um, our our time is kind of winding down here, getting away from us, but. Um, what, what, let me, I'll ask the question the standard journalist asks at the end of any interview that they do, because something like this, you'll probably be familiar with this. So is there anything that we haven't said that you want to say or something that you would, that you haven't gotten to say that you want to say, you, fill in the blank? Yeah, I think sometimes ministry leaders, um, as we begin to talk about some of these realities and they see the complexity for the first time, they feel a little overwhelmed. And I always say, hey, by the way, if you're feeling overwhelmed, that's a little bit, that's a taste of what the couple's feeling trying to navigate this space. So yeah, keep learning, keep growing. I think another thing that people sometimes feel is, wow, what, what is it even worth it? And I want to say, healthy families are always redemptive. They are always mm-hmm. redemptive. There's actually longitudinal research that suggests that when a healthy step family comes along after a, a difficult divorce, children in that healthy step family grow up to, number one, have a better attitude about the institution of marriage, which mm-hmm. we all know people are bailing on the idea of marriage these days. This is transformative for them. They pick better partners and they have more of a likelihood of a long lasting first marriage. Mm. All of that to say, we are redeeming this family generation to generation by helping this blended family do life well. If that's not the work of God, I don't know what he is. That, that's our business, <laughs> is redeeming, restoring, and bringing that to people's lives. So, yes, it is worth it. Yes, it is an investment of time and energy, and you got to retool. And But, man, does it make a difference for people's lives uh, in your church and in your community. I, I would commend this ministry. I believe there will be a day when the vast majority of churches have a step family ministry of some kind or another, simply because they recognize this is our world. This is what people need and we can make a difference. And now I've got one final question that I just thought of, uh, which is terrible to ask you at the end, but I'm going to try and do it. And that is, We've been talking about ministry leaders, but there are lots of people who surround blended families. There are friends and family, et cetera. You know, there's a whole other category of people. Uh, and, I, and I guess the way I would uh, introduce this question is to say, everything that we've said in the podcast also applies to you in thinking yes. about what these relationships are. But is there anything else that applies beyond just the ministry leader um, that, that you would think about as you think about that 
category of acquaintances and friends and family. Well, one thing that's true, period, I think for all people is the need for community. Mm-hmm. We absolutely see this with step family couples. Sometimes we call them step couples. Um, many step couples have never talked to another step couple in their life. They don't know whether they can bring it up. Is it okay? Uh, they don't really have those candid conversations. If you orchestrate that, put them in a room together. Oh my goodness. They take off, they run, they meet their best friends and they support each other. They pray for each other. That small group dynamic is just as important for them as it is for anybody. All of that to say, when you come alongside a friend, uh, a brother who's now part of a blended family, something, and you are community to them, you support them, you encourage them, you come alongside, hand them a book, whatever. How's it going? What can I pray for you? <laughs> All of that says to them, you are part of the family of God and you, you belong here. Not, not on your own merits, of course, but from the sense that we all need God's grace, join a club. We're glad you're here. Step families really need to hear that. They, you know, there's often that, that spiritual shame thing that just haunts them. Mm-hmm. We need to get, help them get past that. And community is one of the ways that make that happen. Interesting. Well, what a fascinating time. Uh, I really do thank you for, uh, for engaging us on, I guess we've got subtitled as blended families in the soul. I mean, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, and it, it, as always, I'm always impressed with the kind of ministry that you're pursuing the gap that it represents. It's why we do this as a podcast. Cause our intent is to let people know this is going on and to get them thinking about it and sensitive to it. So thank you for giving us the time, your time in, in discussing this with us. Thank you. Come, uh, come visit us, familylife.com. We'll help you do ministry well. That sounds great. Thanks, Ron, again, Ron. And we thank you for joining the table uh, where we discuss issues of God and culture. If you want to follow us, please go to whatever service you have where you heard the podcast and, and follow us. That'll uh, allow you to um, be involved in the string of podcasts. If you want to post a review, We'd appreciate that if you found this beneficial, and we hope to see you again soon at the table. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?